0: Hey, welcome to Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. Another incredible show on the, uh, the brink here today. I'm Paul Gillette, your host. And joining me as always, Chris Palomares. Hello. And Mr. Heidi Ho himself, James Lincoln. Greetings and salutations. <laughs> yes, okay. And really excited. Uh, we've got the, the driving force behind ESU, Loke Sound USA on with us today, Matt Herman. Hello, everybody. Matt, thank you very much for your time. I know you're busy with everything that's happening. Uh, just to, so the listeners know, I am a big fan of uh, ESU Sound. The Things they do just work out very well when you put them in a locomotive. So, Matt, uh, you've had a busy couple years since we last talked. A lot of sales, a lot of growth, a lot of OEM business
1: we have we've uh somehow (laughs) kind of worked our way into the market here um you know the the hard part was getting the word out uh the the quality has been there for quite a while but uh we've had a a good time when i when i took over one of the first things that i did was uh i went through and and started re-recording just about everything um from the diesels to the steam uh we've, we've really focused on the diesel side for for the beginning part of it because that's what a lot of the OEMs have asked for, but uh, the, uh, the steam is, is well underway actually at the moment. So we're going to be redoing a lot of that as well. But yeah, it's, it's been a busy few years.
0: What, uh, you, know, your, uh, you know, the different things I like besides the sound and the way you've done that under load is your motor control. I think you have some of the best motor control out there. Before I moved to New Orleans and I was still in Phoenix, I was doing installs there and people would ask for a recommendation, you know, what do you want me to put in? And one of the things that I would always present on your side for the ESUs uh, was the motor control and whether it was, you know, the pilot series, which is non-sound or the select, select direct, the micro is just, you have phenomenal motor control straight out of the box without tweaking any CVs. Great job.
1: Well, that's that's kind of been the goal um, all along. I think even long before I was ever even part of the company, starting back in 2010, there, um, one of the main focuses for the company was the motor control, because if even if it sounded like you were standing right next to the prototype, if it didn't run well, it still wasn't going to be an enjoyable operating session, or you know whatever you were doing there. I mean if it's if it's not enjoyable to run because it's it's you know stuttering and stopping and you know taking off like a shot and you know it just we we found from the very beginning that it just wasn't enjoyable for people to have good sound if it didn't also have good running. So so we base most of what we do on that good running and then we add in the you know the, the brand new and great sounds and all the lighting features and everything else that these decoders can do.
0: Okay. I've done a few installs both for my own equipment and then for other people because normally a weak spot on a manufacturer's line or some of the collateral items, say like speakers. I was always a rail master's yep. uh, guy, but you make a little 16 by 25 oval speaker that comes with a uh, a housing that is puts out incredible sound it's it's crystal clear, it has a lot of fidelity to it, and it's just had Bob at the store start stocking them. I said, this is a great speaker, and, you know, 16 to 25, it doesn't take up a lot of room, but it puts out a lot of sound.
1: Yeah, that's our little 50330, our little uh, 4-ohm speaker, so do be wary of that if you would happen to use it with with other decoders. It is a
0: Mm -hmm.
1: 4-ohm. You don't want to overdrive anything on on another decoder, but a lot of the decoders are getting to the point where they can run 4-ohm speakers, but just kind of keep that in mind. Obviously, if you have a choice, you'd probably want to use ours anyhow, so you won't have a problem with that. But yeah, that's that's a great speaker, and you're right. The, the size fits into just about everything from, from narrow hood diesels to anything bigger. But um, a- along with that one, Paul, we have a brand new speaker. It's really? okay. 50321 and that's a uh, they call it a cell phone type speaker or i've heard people call them exciter type speakers basically it's uh it is it's the same technology that goes into a cell phone this one is 11 by 15 i believe no okay So it's, it's it's even smaller yet it comes with a little kit that you can build for an enclosure and you can build it in I don't know, about eight or nine different configurations from uh, a little bit wider and, and shorter to a little bit more narrow and taller, uh, just to kind of fit whatever situation you have. But the nice thing about the cell phone type speakers is that they tend to give you a broader frequency range. So mm-hmm. you're hearing a lot more of your lows than you would out of a normal diaphragm type speaker. Um, it's it's really seems to be the way that technology is changing. Now, I am finding that the volumes aren't quite as much as what they were before, but that's a double edged sword though, because unless you're in a club situation or sometimes at train shows, volume isn't as big of a deal as it once was. What I found, even in my own modeling, back when sound and, and model trains first started coming out, everybody, you know, had maybe two or three and you know it, it just kinda grew from there. But in those days, if you go to a club or if you'd go somewhere else, it was always, well, I've got sound, so I'm going to have it up as loud as you can possibly get it, and it's going to drown everything else out. Yeah. Um, and, and that seems to have changed. Um, now that the fidelity of the sound has really come into play, and and people have many, many decoders with sound on their, on their railroads, they're finding that the sound can be overpowering to a degree, and if you have too much sound it becomes noise because you have all these different engines that all kind of run together and it's a little bit hard to distinguish one from another so people are starting to kinda have their their home layout volumes and then they have a a club volume or or train show volume and um, this particular speaker it it does do better with a little bit lower volume just because of the type of speaker that it is Uh, but it's still more than enough for a home situation so um you know it's it's very good frequency range but the one downside of a of a cell phone type speaker is sometimes you can't get quite as much volume as you you can out of some of the others so
0: well i had uh the first one i put in i i experienced that so i mounted three of them in it was in an Athern. uh 40-2 and I mounted three of them in built a baffle and all this. And it still just wasn't quite where I wanted it to be. And a friend of mine, who's more of an, ele- an electrician than I am, because I'm not, he goes, look, go back in, wire them series parallel.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and that's what I did. And I almost wept. The sound yeah. was, uh, the volume was there. I actually had to crank it back. But you made a point a minute ago about the ability of these small speakers to pick up the lower mid-range and give a little gut to the prime mover sound. It's amazing.
1: It, it's been a lot of fun working with these types of speakers because, you know, when, when we're creating the sounds and I'm, I'm sampling the sounds, I'm doing it on, on fairly large speakers in my office and, you know, they can display, you know, all sorts of frequency ranges. But then when we put it into a a model, we tend to lose a lot of that just because of the limitations of the speakers that are involved. And it it was kind of a breath of fresh air getting some of these speakers because now we're starting to hear things that were always in the file, but we just couldn't make out because of that limitation. But you make a great point with the the differences in the speakers, too, to use multiple speakers. Um, That's exactly where I was going to go next, so I'm glad you led into that. (laughs)
2: Okay. It's... Well, the, the, another thing that I would—sorry, I'm busting in—but wouldn't um, there's been a lot of discussion in forums about if you have a little bit less sound coming out of a locomotive, you know, your mind and your ear look at a model locomotive and think that much sound shouldn't be coming out of something that size.
1: Well, and that's a great point, Jim, because you know, there's there's a, a resonance of scale that's there, right? And, exactly. You know, Yes, um, it really, theoretically, and, and everybody has their own preferences and I'm not saying that anybody's preferences are wrong It's it's your railroad and uh, you know, you're the you're the master of your own domain there, but um, you know I've I've even seen guys go as far as uh, Taking a, a meter and making every engine, you know scaling it down and saying okay from this distance away This is a decibel level that you should be hearing um, now I'm personally not uh, I don't go that far on my own stuff, but I know a lot of people have started to do that. A lot of clubs are starting to do that even uh, just to get that scale there and it it allows you to, to get the right feeling for that, but also so it doesn't overpower everything else so yeah it's a good point
2: Right. It's a um uh, John Dmitrievich, he has a lot to say about the you know the scale of sound and everything. It's like you know you have an h o scale dog and you and you run a recording of a dog barking at full sound no one it just scares people cuz like that doesn't make any sense that little thing shouldn't be making that much noise and so i think you know a lot of people might say oh yeah i got to have a lot of sound but there's something you know just isn't right so having a little bit less sound coming out of a you know only being able to output so much sound out of a model locomotive probably is a good thing
3: sure well, something that I that you mentioned, Matt, too, uh, going from your nice speakers, your nice monitors when you're doing sound recording, and then going down to a smaller speaker, there's an additional sort of thing that happens. It's when you put that small speaker inside a, a freight car or locomotive shell, it also changes the sound, too. Cool. So um, being able to adjust and uh, fine-tune to not only the, the speaker but also the resonance chamber that the speaker is going
1: into right. kind of
3: makes a big difference too.
1: Well and that's that's actually a really good point, Chris. It's something that a lot of people don't think of and and oftentimes actually work against themselves with. Um, I very early on when I I, I wasn't I was actually working for Bowser at the time. I wasn't working for ESU yet and I knew nothing about sound. Um, I, I, I mean, I've, I've learned as I've gone here. So, I'm, you know, I, this isn't my background. This is trial and error. <laughs> so yeah, don't don't think that I'm all wonderful and have all this, you know, schooling and everything to get to where I've done. It's been pure luck and, and grace because <laughs> you know, it's, it's not because of my knowledge. It's because of my experiences. Well, what I was saying was I, I had a situation where I actually had two Broadway, I'm sorry, not Broadway Limited. Um, I had two Proto uh, 2000 GP30s. An early run, which probably came from uh, Lifelike, and then a later run that I believe came from Walters that had QSI sound in it. And just because of my preferences, I wanted to swap the shells from one to the other. And, you know, I now have a sound engine, so I'm probably going to use that one more often, and I decided to use the shell that it was uh, closer to what I was modeling at the time. And when I swapped the shells, I instantly noticed that the sound engine that... the the sound out of the the new shell wasn't nearly as robust out of the sound out of the old shell. And it took me a little bit to figure out what was going on because nothing really had changed. The only thing that had changed was the shell. I, I didn't do any CV changes, no programming, nothing else. And when I got to examining, what I found was that the original shell had all open grill work. And the second shell, the one that came with the sound engine, they had taken plastic and they had closed off the open grill work and what that did is just as chris was saying it, it created a resonance chamber if all of that open grill work is there the sound can just escape and sound is all about air pressure so yeah, that yeah. pressure can't be there because all those grills are open you may find that the sound is not quite as good as if you would close that off um you know in, in my modeling lately some of the things that i do you know obviously the open grill work is, is really nice and we don't want to lose that so What I've started doing is taking uh, either clear styrene or sometimes black styrene It just depends on the depth of of what I'm trying to do with that open grill work. If if I want to see through from one side to the other, obviously we'll use something clear. But um, if you close that off, oftentimes you'll you'll get a little bit better sound, but you don't want to completely close it off. That's the opposite side. Now the sound can't escape and, you know, it'll be muffled. So there, there is a, a mid-range that uh, sometimes by trial and error you have to find.
0: I've done some, uh, because of what you just said, done some AB comparisons on uh, some Genesis units. You know, grills open with the speaker firing up, a DSM-8, grill masters, and then yeah. close off the grills and turn the speaker, fire it down through the trucks because I've modified the weights in there. And to my ear, and, and these are old ears, but I did not detect any real difference in the sound but that could vary by sound file and stuff so
1: you hit it that's that's part of it too paul yep
0: the guideline there is just there's not an absolute right or wrong way to do it it's what fits the application of the as you said matt the peculiar characteristics of the body and then some other things uh i noticed on my MTA pas they had actually cast in the frame a speaker housing and speaker venting so you can fire down right and it sounds great coupled with that esu uh, alco uh, sound file it just knocked people's socks off
1: well and, and th- that's just it there's a lot of variables and you know people have asked me well what's the best way you know up or down or all that and it i i always tell them it really depends on the installation it depends on the sound file as you said sometimes you know if you have a ge it's going to have or alco sometimes or are those lows are really important. You know, you're trying to get that, you're trying to get the bark and EMD is going to have a much higher pitch sound. So sometimes, sometimes it's too high. Sometimes it can tend to be a little ear piercing. So you can muffle that down a little bit and you'll hear more of the lows by doing different things. So, you know, there, there is, there's a, there's a lot of different things that will affect it and a lot of different, uh, you know, conditions that you have to think about and not everything is the same. So, um uh, Again, just kind of trial by error and do a Google search and see what others have done and there are there is no one right way it it's whatever suits you as the modeler and if you're happy with the sound, that's what's the most important um you know that's that's been hard for me you know just uh even doing what I do to try to help people understand that they're the modeler and you know i I try to work to give options to let them be happy in the way that they want to do things because. Everybody does things a little different. And to say it must be done this way, I I think that's wrong. I I think that that's what makes this hobby great is it allows people to to open up and do things the the way they'd like to do it.
0: And that – the other thing that – or one of the other things that I like – okay, we talked about motor control. Now you've got uh, a a great selection of speakers to complement It's like if I buy the Select Direct, you have built-in LED resistance we have that is so great that's that's one less thing i've got to solder and cram into a small space because you've already put the resistance in there excellent the
1: the select direct was kind of a a, well i don't know whose brain child it was Uh, it was kind of some things that i had asked for and some problems that i had run into in the past and you know i worked with our our engineers in germany we created a a really nice solution you know i'm not going to name names of anyone but there's You know, there's different decoders out there that are made for, you know, a certain company, you know, in a replacement board type decoder. And that was the one thing, you know, we like to be, you know, they tease about German efficiency and German engineering and all that. Well, I can definitely attest to the efficiency of things. You know, in in our manufacturing, one of the things that we really try to do is create um, a design that we can reuse as often as possible. And, you know, we do that for a lot of reasons. One is to do our best to try to keep the cost of the decoders down. If we don't have to have all kinds of different designs, it also keeps our stock numbers down. Um, You know, we have basically a one-size-fits-all board in that Select Direct. And we took and we looked at and we measured a lot of different engines, a lot of different motor mounts. Um, We looked at how things would be mounted into a lot of locomotives. We were sure to have the holes there for a lot of different brands of motor mounts. And we made sure that we didn't have any components on the bottom of that board so that it wouldn't interfere, depending on what you were installing in. Yeah. Uh, You know, so, and that was, that was on them. You know, I, they asked me where all that stuff was, but, uh, you know, they were the ones that came up with that design and it's really worked out well. That's without a doubt, one of our best selling decoders. And, um, you know, by the ability to to put that LED resistance in that, uh, that was a huge help with it as well. I, I did, uh, for Chris's sake here, I did ask for the uh, amish, or the uh, addition of uh, uh, one-and-a-half-volt bulb uh, resistance as well. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that, uh, that didn't happen at the time, but um, I did make sure that on our packaging, I do have on there, whether you're using one or two atherin bulbs on those, uh, just what resistance that you would use, and we have solder bridges built right in so that if you do go that route, you're not left in the dark there. You can you can certainly use it.
0: <laughs> no pun intended, right?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, Chris and I have talked about the pros and cons of LEDs before, and I understand his his concerns from a manufacturing standpoint.
1: Absolutely. But
0: that is uh, just one of my standards when I do a job for people. Look, you're getting LEDs, you know, warm white or whatever, just so you don't have to worry about them burning out in the, uh, the future. But, yeah, that's a good point. I noticed that. You've got the bridge that you can solder to uh, be able to use the bulbs.
1: Well, and you know, and just kind of going back there a little bit, and like I mentioned before, it comes down to to modelers' preference sometimes. And, sure. You know, there's there's certainly a, a, a fair crowd out there that still really likes the, the way that bulbs work, and we certainly don't want to alienate them either. So yeah, you know, that's why we try to work in you know all those options. Our or LEDs have come a, a very long way, and you can now find colors that are extremely close to bulbs. And along those same lines, we've also worked in pulse width modulation and what we call LED mode right into the decoders, so that they act much more like bulbs. Um, you know, an LED will not act like a bulb under normal conditions. So we've worked into the electronics the so ways that, to create. You know when you turn your headlights on in a locomotive, we don't. You notice they don't just come on. You know they they slowly fade on, they slowly fade off, and even with LEDs, we're able to do that, and that's because of that pulse width modulation.
0: Oh yeah, uh, And that's a simple CV setting that you guys have provided. I like the the uh, fact that in your when I'm setting up headlights, gyro lights, whatever else, you allow me to select. The intensity or the brightness of the light. Yeah, and I think that's excellent. A uh, lot of value add there.
1: It, it's hard sometimes, unless you've got certain tools or a little bit of a background electronics, to know, you know, what resistor to use for for certain applications. You know, obviously, you're going to want your headlight to be much brighter than you want, say, your number board lights or sure. uh, maybe a cab interior light or something along those lines. So, you know, that having that ability to To get things, you know, use all the same resistors, start off with the same brightness, and then go in and make adjustments based on your needs, that's become really, really handy. And I I use that a lot when I set up locomotives for OEMs as well, um, just to try to level everything out from the beginning.
3: That would have been a really uh, handy feature when I was doing a sound locomotive install where I had ground lights above the trucks. Yes. And... (laughs) You know, I was trying to scale it back with resistors and it, it, it always seemed to be the brightness I wanted was like right in <laughs> a, a, an ohm value, you know? <laughs> so
0: Oh, that's uh, a, that's excellent, Chris. I mean, so you were using, what, surface mounts like an 0402 or something like that?
3: Well, e- even more primitive than that. I was using uh, bulbs and, uh, you know, those inline resistors between the bulb and the board. And this is okay. back before this is pre tsunami days so okay. <laughs> it, it, it led to a certain amount of challenges it's just like okay the, the the brightness i want is about like you know a six and a half and i have this 10 ohm resistor you know <laughs>
0: okay. chris you just faded out right there so don't don't back away from the microphone
3: okay well yeah now I, i'm on my handset here so it, it's kind of in and out
0: Okay, no, you've been good. It's just all of a sudden you went away and I thought, shoot, he went to get a beer.
1: Uh, (laughs) I'll be right there, Chris.
0: (laughs) All right. (laughs) We have UPS overnight this way. Uh, uh, Now, it's interesting because, you know, when I was uh, able to hear Matt's presentation at uh, Litchfield Station back in Phoenix, I think that was... I don't know, 2013, 2014, whatever you were there. and
1: yeah, I, I want to say it was 14, yeah, I believe.
0: Okay. Jack Lynch had the uh, special on the uh, programmers, and I thought, well, what the heck? I mean, it's a, it's a handy little programmer. I was speaking to your wife one time. I was running into a problem, and when I called, uh, your wife answered the phone, and I said, I have a hard time making heads and tails out of the German mindset that wrote this this manual. (laughs) And then on your forums, I saw that one of the user groups did an unofficial version that approached it from the perspective of uh, an American mind, (laughs) a non-German mind, and I downloaded it, and I went, wow, this is really great.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the gentleman that, that wrote a lot of that, his name is Phil Dunlop. He and I worked together on it because, you know, for exactly that reason. The, the original, um, be, because, let me back up here. I'm getting myself confused. <laughs> when Because the low programmer is still, well, we're getting to the end of it, but, uh, you know, it's still kind of in production in terms of the software a little bit. You know, we'll add features or this and that for a while there at the beginning, they weren't ready to write the manual yet because they were still making some changes, but the decoders existed. So they wanted to at least get the software out. And, and you know, most people have kind of fumbled their way through it just a little bit, but Phil and I decided, you know what, it's it's time to go ahead and write one. And, um, you know, actually uh, Phil's given us permission to go ahead and put that up on our website. So that will be there very shortly as the official version. Uh, you know, now that, uh, you know, we're pretty much there with, uh, with Big changes, at least, to the software. So, um, but along with what Phil has written, the idea, even from the very beginning, was that you know this would be a, a PDF download from the website. So, if you're looking at it online, as you're going through from section to section, wouldn't it be nice if there was a YouTube video that showed exactly what is going on in the Log Programmer as you're reading that paragraph? So, I've been working on videos here, uh, just you know, I just capture my screen as I'm, I'm moving along with the mouse to the low Programmer. So if you go to our website, right across the top of the page, and it's www.lokesound.com, L-O-K-S-O-U-N-D, right across the top of the page, there's a, a new menu called Videos. And there's a number of different subcategories, but one of them is the low Programmer. And I'll go through, and there's, there's a couple there I've been trying to do one a week but the last few with train fest on that i've gotten a little bit behind so hopefully i'll get one tonight out yet um but i've been going through and um yeah i did one on function mapping i've done one just as an overview um i'll i'm going to start getting into uh, how do you work the different lighting effects uh how do you create a sound file and creating sound schedules and um everything that the log programmer can do and um now there's a lot of neat little little tips and tricks in those videos. So along with that manual that is going to be on our website very shortly, there's also the videos that you can go to now and, and uh get a few pointers as you go.
0: I uh, I mean your programmer is a uh to me is a real time saver because certain selections I make are triggering macros because they're gonna go in and change the value of of three different Uh, CVs behind the scenes whereas with some of the other competitive decoders like I'm not a JMRI guy it frustrates me (laughs) so I just learn the CVs learn the values and just do it but I do like what yours does now I was going to ask I've always been curious about this I can go in on yours and tweak CV5 and CV6 which are uh, top-end and mid-range speed control now when I do that am I actually restraining I mean I know there's you know 14 volts on the track and going through the board am I actually then constraining how much of that voltage goes to the motor control transistors
1: Is that what I'm you said, doing you told me no trick questions well, <laughs> you know, I, I don't I honestly I'd have to think about that one a little okay. bit. I might have to get back to you on that. I'll have to look at how they've actually done that. I don't believe. Well, I mean, in a sense, I guess the answer is kind of yes. Um, what's what's happening is you're you are restricting the amount of voltage that's going to the motor at that point, the speed that it's going to go, because what the motor is getting is basically essentially just voltage. It's not really getting any other information. So it's just saying, okay, well at, you know, i I've received this much voltage, I need to spin at this much RPM. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by doing what you, what you've said, that's essentially, you know, without uh, talking to my engineers about it, I would say that that makes sense. That basically, you know, if you bring that, that top end CV down, um, you know you're you're limiting to you know maybe 12 volts going to the motor instead of fourteen or um, you know something along those lines
0: yeah and even more than voltage it's the uh the amps too
1: exactly yes yep
0: because yep. I had a uh and you took your company took care of it under warranty but I had put a unit uh, a select in a an mth and they notoriously uh Use a lot more voltage, and so the motor control unit on the one uh, just all of a sudden it went away. <laughs> it was trying to be shoved by the the B unit. So one of the forums, the guy said, "Well, first go in and make sure that you know this point, this point, this point are lube because sometimes the motors come out of the factory." And the bearings or the motor shaft is really not adequately lubed. And you've got that multiplier friction there. So I've done all of that. And I went in and controlled CV5, CV6. And uh, the replacement has worked just fine. And that's why I asked. That was how my mind worked. I went, oh, maybe I've just manually, you know, forced a lower amp load on this uh, transistor to keep from frying it.
1: Uh, and that's that's definitely, you know, that sounds very logical. <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like I said before, you know, the the guys in Germany tend to make me look a lot smarter than I really am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And they've made it easy for me. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you know, they uh, they definitely really really know what they're doing. I I certainly would not be able to have the you know the success that I've had. And, you know, I, I don't I don't account that to my success at all. It's it's the company's success. All I've been able to do is is be able to let people know about it. Um, okay. You know the the quality that's there. That's that's the engineers, the the sound editing and, and all that. Again, that's my engineers. I I've, I've you know I help them, I guide them, and telling them what we as Americans like. Um, but uh, you know they're the ones that are doing that cutting and that editing. Um, I have the hard part of you know, going off from week to week and getting all these rare mileage cab rides and steam engines and old Alcos. But, you know, I'll, I'll suffer through that part for you guys, but the, hey, the it's rest it's a tough of it, job. Someone's got to do it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, honestly, the, uh, the hard part, the, you know, the really technical hard part that's being done by, by our technicians and, um, both in Germany. And we've actually just hired a, a new sound engineer in the United States. And, He's he's really really excellent. Um, the last few files that we're releasing were ones that he's done, and um, we just did a U23B. Uh, he's done a, a GP38 for us, which was phenomenal, um, uh, and and a number of others. We've got a little list of stuff, and you know, once we're all done, once we've finally got them all, which you know, who knows if we'll ever get to that point, but uh, we're gonna start over again. You know, it's uh, what we've thought about and what we've discussed many times is. Why only have one 645 16-cylinder non-turbo prime mover? Um, why not have a couple? You know, not every engine is going to sound the same. Even if they've got this, you know, um, subsequent serial numbers, they're going to have a different life. Uh, they've got, you know, one was used here, one was used there, one was used a lot harder, had, you know, has more miles on it, uh, whatever. Um, it had a turbo replaced or had an exhaust replaced or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, you know, there are differences. So I think some of the things that kind of get people a little bit worn on sound is that everything sounds the same. So it's it's okay to have things that sound a little different. Uh, and if that means, you know, using different brands of decoders to mix that up, that's great. That's There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if we can do it all on our own and keep all that motor control and all those lighting effects and features all there... You know, I've got no problem with having some variations within our own files when it comes to sounds. I, I think, personally, I think it's a good thing. And, you know, I could be wrong, but <laughs> that's that's our goal.
0: The fact that you can uh, overwrite the sound file, I had, I don't like the sound of an SD60, even in real life. They're just, I find it obnoxious. So, well, then I
1: won't tell you what our next sound is. <laughs> okay,
0: okay. And so I had these two Walther Proto SD60s. And I had them at the store on the big layout, and I went, "Golly, I just don't don't like this." So I took them home, and I listened to one of your 6:45 Turbo files, yeah. and it was a much more pleasing. So I traded them out, and it's just what you said. People are going, "Look at that! Same locomotive, they sound differently, just like in real life." But with yours, I can do that because I can re-record the file.
1: It's nice because we often do go through and, and re-record or do an upgrade uh, to a file that we already have available, and in and, and other decoders you're left to having to replace that decoder to do the upgrade. And with ours, if, if you've done that twice, you've paid for the low programmer. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it's that's you know a hundred dollars a decoder, you know, list price, and um, you know you all you've had to do is, is download the sound for a free download. Um, you know that's. Uh, that's value added as far as I'm you – know, well, I, I don't mean to keep going on it, but the I, – I often get, you know, well, oh, I was talking to so-and-so, and I was told that in order to use your decoders, you have to have a LOC programmer. And and that's – unfortunately, it's just simply not true. Um, yeah, I've heard different people say that, but it's just a little bit of a misconception. The LOC programmer is not one of those things – you know, I, I I'll never forget my pastor. One time, he he said, you know, church is one of those things that you don't got to do, you get to do. And the look programmer is a lot of the same way. It's the look programmer is something that you get to use, not something that you got to use. The everything that you can do CV wise with a uh, with another branded decoder, you can do CV wise with our decoder. Um, the difference is above and beyond those CVs. You also have the ability to go in and change those sounds and to, to get in and, you know, change it from a diesel to a steam or from a 16-cylinder to a 12-cylinder, you know, those types of things. So, uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to ramble there. That's no, cool. no, no. Hey, hey, Matt. <laughs> yeah, Chris.
3: <laughs> you know, I, I realized something kind of just going back into my, my memory files, which are, are not the most accurate, but I, I do recall like GP60s. Back in the 90s, sounding a lot different than they do today. I don't know what happened there. Maybe it's just my own perception. I don't know. But the idle on those GP60s in the 1990s was way different than any SD40 2, GP40 2, GP50, anything. Yep. It had this really weird timing to it. You know, it would go sort of like, whereas like a Jeep40 2 would be just like a, wah, sort of a constant. And I just haven't heard, heard that replicated, that sort of detail. And when you're saying, oh, we're going to record multiple versions of, like, a GP60 or a GP40-2, that's fantastic because then, you know,
1: maybe there's going to be
3: a, an ability to kind of achieve that 1990s GP60 sound
1: now. Well, know? and that's exactly what we're going after, Chris. Uh, low idle, high idle. Um, you know, smart start, um, you know, all kinds of stuff in there that, you know, we'd have the ability to do. And the way the select sound is built, or the select sound files are built, we've got four different sound slots in there. And now, while I tend to use them all for the same prime mover, essentially, we can have different things happening with the prime mover, just like, as you say, maybe uh, one of them's got a slightly different governor, so the idle sounds are different uh, from one to the next. Um, maybe, like I said, you know, maybe the turbo was replaced. Now, usually something with a turbo would have to do a completely new sound file, but because uh, that's usually integrated into the prime mover. but um, you know there's it, that's exactly right. that's that's our point, that's our our goal and all of that. and my my new sound editor, um, you know being that he's from the states and he understands our our locomotives you know even a little bit more than uh, you know what my editor in Germany does. Uh, He makes it a little bit easier for me because, you know, where there's times where I'm the one always explaining to to my editor in Germany, how I'd like to have things done. My new editor also already knows how a lot of that stuff should be done. So on top of of my ideas and, you know, my ideas include those that are given to me by customers sometimes. (laughs) So, um, you know, along with those, he's adding his own. Um, He's got horns that, you know, depending on when you release the button it'll pick up and add in that amount of error that's let off. So you have four or five different starts and endings depending on how quickly you press that horn button again. Um, we don't have a short horn and a long horn. It, it's based on exactly how you're pressing that button. Um, you know, that's, that's just one little thing. So when I worked for Bowser, my whole goal was to super detail the shell. And I, I use this in my clinics all the time. But, uh, you know, now that I'm not working on the, the exterior of the locomotives anymore. I've taken that same level of detail into the sounds themselves and now we're super detailing the sound side of it. But yeah, it's a great point, Chris.
2: But even mm. you know, you have the difference in because I work around them. Different the forty dash two, so we have F forties, obviously. But um you have one where you where you can definitely hear it sounds more normally aspirated. Yes. Then but you can hear more of the gp38 sound than the 40 debt the the 40 sound so right. and and each one really is different so
1: well and you know one of the things i was just looking the other day i was kind of curious myself I and mean, we talked about the 645s here just for a minute you know there's just looking out at what's available from other companies and i i haven't looked real hard so maybe i've missed something but But overall, most other companies have have two 645s. They have a a turboed 645, and they have a non-turboed 645. Well, so far, and and just my last count, and I actually did kind of look this up a little bit this past weekend because somebody asked me about it at TrainFest. We have seven at the moment, and that's not counting variations like dual prime movers for uh, – the DD40 or the F40, which has HEP built into it. It's not just a, a, you know, a SD40 with, uh, you know, that that runs in notch eight. We've we've got it built so that it runs like an F40. Um, We have a a 16-cylinder turbo E3. We have a 16-cylinder turbo F, you know, for for an SD50. We have a 12-cylinder turbo. We have a 12-cylinder non-turbo. We have 16-cylinder non-turbos. Um, we have uh, I've recorded and we're, we're working on a 20 cylinder turbo for an SD45, and even there there's differences. Uh, you know the prime mover that goes into an SD45, a regular flared SD45, is slightly different than what you're going to get in a 45 uh, uh, tunnel motor. Um, you know it's a little slightly different prime mover, slightly different exhaust. So having those variations to me, I, I believe is very important that, that just goes right along with that sound super detailed because you've done all that work, you know, you know, Chris at Athern, you know, they've done beautiful, beautiful jobs on the outsides of these shells. They're, they're gorgeous. So, you know, what we like to do is is work hard to, to make sure that the inside is accurate as the outside. So, um, you know, that's, that's our goal. That's, that's, what i do is it's and it's not a job it's a labor of love because it's it's my hobby as well so
0: let me ask you uh besides all of these features the attention to detail that you guys have devoted to the the sound files the motor control one of the things that's just really impressive has been your success at uh, acquiring OEM business uh you've got to be the
1: market leader there um I I guess if you were to to count, you know, there's there's probably some uh, some truth to that in terms of you know how many OEMs that are there. But um, you know, but my goal really isn't to become to or to take away business from anybody. Right. You know, it's it's a it's a small industry, so everybody kind of knows each other. We're all friends, but I think. That side of it is as much to do with anything as, as even the, the quality of the sound and the decoders. You know, I work very hard at not being a supplier, at not having customers. That's, that's honestly, that's the opposite of the direction that I want to go. I'm not looking for more customers. Um, you know, And I know that sounds very odd. I'm looking for partners. As a I I am a modeler. I'm a rail fan. I mean, trains are my lifestyle. Uh, I've been around it my entire life. My father was a chief mechanical officer for a railroad. I I was well, you know, don't tell anybody, but I was running locomotives at twelve years old. You know, it's this has always been a part of me. And, you know, my father's recently passed away and a lot of the reasons that I that I work hard is to kind of carry on that tradition and you know, just kinda think, you know, what would you know what would he think of where we've where we've gotten on things. And I look at what what I'm doing you know trying to figure out well what would I want and I work hard to achieve that for the manufacturers now again everybody's got their own desires and likes so I'm not saying that what I want is always right by any means but my entire goal is to try to work hard to be partners with the the manufacturers I I don't want them just to be clients I want them to succeed as much as I'm succeeding or, or in some cases even more. And, you know, whatever it takes to do that, I I try to show them that, you know, that's my goal as as well to, to do whatever it takes.
2: Yeah. And I, as you were mentioning that, um, you know, don't tell anybody, but I used to get, I used to run locomotives. Uh, I don't think there's anything anyone can do to your father from the company. So, uh, I think he's okay.
1: Yeah. I'm pretty sure this was a few <laughs> years ago.
2: Yeah. I'm pretty sure that, uh, either
1: different time too. Different,
2: yeah. Different time. And, uh, probably his boss is long gone as well. So
1: yeah, it's yeah. probably
2: although I did text that little piece of information to a couple of my contacts at uh, CSX, but that's probably no. <laughs>
1: that's okay, they won't work with me anyhow. So oh. Wow, that's a big
2: surprise. <laughs> they won't work with their employees either. So
1: <laughs> You know, it's it's amazing uh the the railroads that that will work with you and the ones that won't i've i've recorded with amtrak with union pacific with uh you know some some major players but you know then there's some short lines that are are so afraid of the liability side you know and and i i don't blame them you know i i certainly you know i i wouldn't put them in a position where it'd be difficult for them to to carry on but uh it's it's funny sometimes, you know, from my point of view that you know I've i worked with Union Pacific and but you know this railroad that has one locomotive that runs three days a week is <laughs> you know, that one's hard to get into. <laughs> yeah. So it yeah. just it just depends on the situation sometimes.
2: <laughs> and there's two railroads that run. say the, the two different railroads that run the same section of line. The one that Mike Rose models. Uh
1: huh, yeah.
2: And uh, one is uh, apparently the friendliest railroad in the world. And the one that operates the other end is the most miserable bunch of
1: <laughs> folks.
2: <laughs> and it's the same piece of railroad track.
1: Uh, we've, we've certainly run into that. But mo- most of what we find is that, uh, um, especially you start to work with the crews, uh, they're yeah. they're really good. Um, yeah. You know, you get a long way on a, a couple cups of coffee and a pack of donuts. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah,
2: I mean, the crews, honestly, it's like, um, yeah, go over there. If anything happens to you, I didn't know you were there. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, we're going to be doing X and Y, just go over there, stay out of our way. <laughs> if you get run over, it's on you.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and the fact that you know, my father was the chief mechanical officer and I, and I was around it my entire life, it definitely helps because, you know, I, i know what it is to be safe around or on a railroad and right you know right. that's that's important and i i sure make sure that that's very clear with whoever i'm i'm arranging everything with when, when we set everything up so um that's certainly helpful to, to know that there's a little bit of background there and you're not just uh you know some guy wanting to go for a ride today so um, right it is fun though <laughs> i oh, do yeah. enjoy yeah. it whether I, <laughs> and whether it's work or not
3: <laughs> uh-huh.
1: It's it's nice to
3: get out of the house, then, uh, Matt. Yeah, (laughs) go for a ride on a train.
0: (laughs) Yeah, force me to get on this locomotive and uh, listen to sounds.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Here, I'll hold this microphone and pretend I'm 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 doing something. You know. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. (laughs) You've been recording for eight hours. You really need all that. (laughs) Uh, Every every second
3: of it. That's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that that I notice on your decoders. And of course, you put your own sound files on them. So if you're a, a retailer, distributor, manufacturer, you know, your approach has really cut down the number of uh, SKUs that you've got to do an inventory. Uh, all you need is, like you said, download a free file and record them so you got ultimate flexibility. I know that Hobby store I work for, that was just, you had him when I described. I said, Look, all you need are four SKUs and uh, we can program these. The other thing is, most of the ones that would come in and that I've ordered and stuff have the eight pin, but you also do a nine pin version and a 21 pin version?
1: Um, At the moment, we have the eight and the 21. There's actually not a, a nine pin at the moment. We have a conversion plug coming out um going going back to the to earlier in our conversation here and um i know chris is probably going to have to head out here shortly but uh i'll try to get through this quickly for his sake the uh the eight to nine pin or i'm sorry the the, the nine to twenty one pin conversion plug should be out at the very beginning of the year and a lot of the reason we're making that is is for Ather's sake uh, they, they are still using the nine pin and in uh, quite a few engines and and there's nothing wrong with that the the reason that we've gone to the 21 pin plug and And, uh, you know, that I'm glad you brought it up because that does create a lot of questions sometimes. Again, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, I had made mention to the fact that, you know, the the Germans and, uh, you know, our our company as a whole, it's not just the Germans, it's it's just it's the efficiency side of things where they really try to create a, a decoder that we can reuse many times over. And. The way the eight-pin plug version of the decoder and the 21-pin plug version are, it's essentially the same hardware with just different plugs put onto it. But the 21 side of things, the 21-pin side of things, it was done that way because as manufacturers get more and more involved in different lighting features, and um, you know as technology advances here, we have the ability with these you know little micro surface mount 402 LEDs to put them, you know, in many, many places that we just didn't have the ability to do before. Well, now, in order to operate all those things, we need to have more pins. You know, the eight-pin plug only allows you to have three different lighting effects, you know, front light, rear light, and something else. Um, The nine-pin, of course, gives you four. But, you know, if you have a, a Norfolk Southern locomotive that has front headlight, rear headlight, and flashing ditch lights on both ends, now you've run into some trouble. Because, you know, front headlight, rear headlight, there's two. Flashing ditch lights on the left and flashing ditch lights for, for right, that that takes up all four of, of your nine pin. So in order to get directional flashing ditch lights, now you've got to start playing some other games or we use something like the 21-pin the plug, which has the ability to actually go up to eight function outputs. Uh, in most cases, it's six, but uh, depending on... Uh, how you're using the decoder, the standard allows you to use it for six or eight. Um, again, typically we stick to the, to the six, but there has been some instances where we've had to go up to eight. Uh, Bowser's SD40-2 that's coming out is an example of that. It's going to have uh, class lights of all the number boards. There's, there's three outputs right there for, for red, green, and white that turn on and off independently with one function button just cycling through. Um, you've got uh, number boards. You've got headlights that are directional. You have ditch lights. Um, if you want to have flashing ditch lights, now we've we've run into even more. So fortunately, the Canadians that you know road names didn't often have flashing ditch lights, but uh, they also made it onto uh, leasing programs, and you know some of them did get them. So you know there's there's a lot of that that we have to, to take into account. So that's a lot of the reason why we've gone to that 21 pin plug it just gives us more connection with no wires so all the all the connections are through that plug and there's there's no wires so not only do we have all of those features and and functions now through that plug but it also frees up the warranty side of things now you know manufacturers don't like to talk about you know their warranties and you know things going wrong but it doesn't matter what electronics company you work for electronics tend to go bad um, whether it be because of a short circuit because of a derailment or um, a wiring problem or you know maybe just a, a faulty component. Um, you know we have a very low percentage of that and you know I think most companies do but it does happen so at that point with a 21 pin plug in today's age, if you have everything all hardwired in place and the engine has to be sent back to be fixed, now someone has to take the shell off, they have to unsolder or at least take off those those little black you know plugs there uh, that, that hold the wires onto the board. Um, and then you have to worry about, well, what gets damaged in all of that? Um, what if uh, only a certain number of them were made as is so often the case these days and You know, there are no more to replace it. Maybe the UPS truck that just left my building here runs over it on the way out when they drop the package. Um, Now maybe you can't get that back. So with that 21-pin plug, the customer can very easily take two screws out in most cases today and simply take their shell off, unplug the decoder, drop it in an envelope, and mail it back to either myself or to the manufacturer that they got the engine from, the manufacturer in turn sends a new decoder that they have in stock that are all the same they program it up for that engine and now all of a sudden all they got to do when they get the back is plug it in put the shell back on and everything works again so it just it takes a lot of steps and a lot of there's a lot of cost savings there so there's there's a lot of reasons for that 21 pin plug but overall that's one of the reasons that we've picked up the manufacturers that we have it, it's creating a lot of time and cost savings uh, in the whole process of manufacturing, and in terms of warranty and and uh, repair. Sorry to ramble there, guys.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. That, uh what I was hoping for was a detailed explanation of of uh, why you do that. Um, the what I find, you know, because when I'm doing them, I'm typically hardwiring them anyway, because uh, I'm taking out the factory board. Uh, regardless of whose locomotive it is, and I'm just bypassing all that and going direct to the decoder. Uh, and I made this statement a while ago. is right out of the box, you know, just setting the basic CVs using the uh, LOC programmer. I'm always amazed when I hit speed step one, the RPMs come up, and then after the RPMs are up, the locomotive starts to just creep forward. It is so realistic. The Germans have done a very good job, and in whatever influence you had on that, excellent.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. I, if you don't mind, I I don't mean to interrupt you. I let, no, no, go ahead, now, go ahead. Just for a second, um, you know, there's there's a couple trains of thought there. Doing recordings, and I and I and I know that all the other manufacturers, uh, you know, of decoders have seen this as well. Um, what we've what we found in our recordings is that. In most locomotives, most diesels, notch one actually doesn't really change the sound. You don't really hear a transition from idle to notch one. So what we've started to do is do some prototypical notching within the decoder. I, I, meet, I briefly mentioned before how we in our select decoders we have four different sound slots Internally that we can use for the prime mover the most recent files that we've been working on We've included a a normal prime mover what what I like to call the model railroaders prime mover. It's what everybody kind of thinks is right (laughs) Because that's what they're used to Uh, so many decoders as soon as you turn up the throttle they even speed step one the prime mover will raise uh, to that first transition level and in the prototype that actually doesn't happen when you go into notch one on the throttle the, all that happens is that the prime movers get engaged at that point. If anything, the RPMs actually slightly drop because you're feeling a bit of a load on the on the traction motors or because of the traction motors. So it, you don't actually hear a real transition until you get to notch two. So if you're a light engine, and here's where the trains of thought come in. If it's a light engine, you should be able to hear the the prime mover, well, you shouldn't hear any notching when you start to move. You should be able to see the locomotive start to move in idle, maybe hear a little bit of a load, and then as you increase again, then you'll get into notch two where the sounds will actually make that transition. In retrospect, though, if you have a train behind you, as soon as you turn it into notch one and you're engaging those traction motors, if you have a load behind you, oftentimes you're not going to start moving yet. And that's what our decoders right now typically represent, that you're building up that, that uh, momentum, you're building up the, uh, um, the, the sounds of the prime mover loading, and then the, uh, as that momentum builds, your train gradually starts to go. Um, so both of those are now being built right into our decoders, both prototypical notching and, again, what I call the, the model railroading notching that we're all so used to.
0: And another feature with that is the fact that your sound files coast. The decoder, I guess, monitors where I've got the speed step, the current flow, and if it doesn't need to be it idle, it's like it idles and coasts. And then the RPMs will come up when the speed drops and, and the load increases. <laughs> that is so realistic.
1: Well, a, a lot of times the way we work that out is it's, it's built into the schedule that we're looking at how the throttle is being moved. So, okay. Um, and, and not just whether it's going up or whether it's going down, but it's also looking at how quickly I'm turning it up and how quickly I'm turning it down. Um, I believe, uh, well, you had mentioned Mike Rose uh, briefly, uh, one of his good friends, and I'm, I'm sure a, a name that a lot of people be familiar with is Mike Rose. Or I'm, I'm sorry, Mike Conflon. Uh, the Mike and Mikes there. But Mike Conflon and I have been working pretty closely together on how to create some buttons that'll even drop it to coast. So uh, the way again, going right back to everybody operates their own way. Uh, we're really trying to build in multiple ways of running your trains depending on what your preferences are. So Mike, Mike Conflon and I again are, are working into this. Uh, this push-button type situation where if you just simply push whatever button you have it mapped to It'll just simply drop to coast and that can be happening while you're drifting downhill We also have a, a straight to 8 button that uh, You know you can be coasting along uh, You get to the bottom of a hill and you press a button and now it starts gradually climbing the notch 8 That's slightly different than the normal manual notching, but along the same concept um this doesn't actually separate it, it basically it's kind of manual notching but it's manual notching on the fly and it goes basically straight to aid or straight to coast it's really cool when you're when you're creeping through a yard and you're you just you're going along you have the coast button pressed and then you let it go and it works its way up one or two notches and then you press the button and it drops back down and um, it just allows you to replicate the prototype much more closely. Um, you know, so that's, that's one way it can be done again. Um, the other way that we typically do, and it's built into all of our files is that it follows the throttle. If I quickly turn that throttle up, you're going to hear an accelerated path, which in the sound schedule, that's going to, you know, basically just like you took the throttle and you cranked it up two or three notches. Um, if you go up slowly with the throttle, it'll go up notch by notch. And the same thing will happen as you go down. If you go down slowly with the throttle, it'll go down notch by notch. If you if you quickly turn it, uh, it'll it'll drop all the way to idle and coast there for a little bit. And then after a period of time, if you haven't gone all the way to stop, it'll it'll work its way back up if it feels it needs to load. Um, so there's there's lots of different options there, and we've really tried to replicate the prototype as as much as we can, and given options to do it and to to access those those prototypical features um, any way the modeler feels is correct to him um, in the modeling situation. <laughs> so that's that's often a challenge to try to create the sound file that is as close to the prototype as possible, but still allow it to be enjoyable to run on a on a model layout. You know, we've talked about the scale of things with the volumes and that, but that turns into momentum as well and mass. You know, a model doesn't have quite the same mass as a real locomotive. Sure, so, sure. you know, that can be handled sometimes through the momentums and, you know, that's in our motor control and our normal files. We do try to account for some of that. The other side of that is on a, on a real prototype line, you have miles and miles of trackage. And, you know, on most layouts, you just simply don't have that kind of space. and. You know, and then we've tried to work out the files so that they can be enjoyable to, be enjoyable to run on a 4 by 8 layout or a uh, uh, Ken McCrory uh, uh, behemoth of a layout. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's it's always a challenge to try to please as many people as possible. Okay.
0: Now, you mentioned you hit on the fact you've got new sound engineer. You're going to be working on... I won't say improving, that's the wrong word, but maybe updating some of the sound files and so forth. You just released all a number of dual mover sound files, E-units, uh, DL109s, etc., which are all uh, cool. I've got those downloaded. I've got installs that have been waiting on them. I'm glad you got them out. Yep. Uh, <laughs> what else do you see in the future?
1: Well, um, and I, I touched on it just a little bit before with the different cylinders in the prime movers. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, depending on how late I feel like staying at the office tonight, <laughs> I've got uh, at least three 12-cylinder files. One of them is actually already out on the website at the moment, but it's just the select version. I'm, I'm working on the 4.0, and I'm I'm working on a sound sample for it, but there's a, a U23B. Uh, that's that's Again, it's... The the select version is out right now. Um, That's a 12-cylinder FDL, but it's an early one. Uh, It's slightly different than, say, a B23-7, which has a a little bit more modern exhaust and a a few other uh, enhancements in terms of uh, electronics and uh, uh, air compressors and things like that that are a little bit different in it. Um, We have a 12-cylinder 645 non-turbo uh this one was recorded from a gp15 it was also worked really well for an sw 1500 and some other things Uh, we have a 12 cylinder alco 251 Um, this one was recorded from an rs18 but again it's it's very accurate for an rs11 Uh, it's pretty close to a c420 um, m420 those types of things now mike Conflon will tell you that the m420 should sound different and I agree with them, but uh, this is a this is a good you know intermediate file until we actually do an M420, which is on the list right now. So you know again, just because the prime mover is the same doesn't mean it's going to sound the same from engine to engine. You know different exhaust stacks. Uh, you know there's there's all kinds of hardware that's different from one thing to another. Different governors, different turbos. Right, so right. prime mover alone isn't the uh, the indicator of what something should sound like completely. So. We're also, uh, I've recorded, it's it's being edited. I have a 12-cylinder 645E3 turbo. Uh, that would be right for a GP39 or Atherns new SD39. Um, you know, again, different cylinders. So, you know, one 645 doesn't fit them all. Um, we have a gen set that is just about ready to release. Uh, that's probably going to be next week. I've got a few little tweaks. Um, we have some... Uh, Uh, galloping goose i'm working on a heisler file that's just about complete and we are working heavily and uh, focusing on some steam we've we've done a lot of recording this year Um, we've even got some movie quality uh, audio coming to us here but uh, i can't really share too much about that one yet but uh there's uh there's some good stuff coming along we're we're just getting started. Um, we've only just begun, as they say. <laughs> <So>.
3: <laughs>
0: okay, you and Karen Carpenter. That's uh, right. <laughs> one thing, okay, so you mentioned steam. And one of the things that just impressed me, and I put my money where my mouth was on that, I bought an Intermountain Cab Forward ESU low Sound, and the sound was so more prototypical than my other Intermountain cab Ford where I'd put a competitive decoder in it. So I had to send it back to Intermountain for a repair. And I asked them, I said, while it's there, will you take out the decoder that's in there and put in an ESU with your sound file? And I said, just tell me how much it is. I'll send you the money, which they're doing. That's how impressive
1: your articulated sound file is. We worked hard to, you know, to try to replicate that. But You know, a lot of that, and and this goes with all of our files, I really try to capture the prototype. You know, some of that just, you know, if I'm recording for a day, I very typically do not go out and just spend an hour. I'll try to arrange it. You know, Steam's, well, like the Cap Ford, obviously I can't just go out and record one. But but I, I went through my library with that one, and we worked very closely with the people that knew, or at least, you know, try to remember or, you know, get as close as we can, you know, a lot of, a lot of people's memories aren't what they used to be and, and what something sounded like in their memory. It oftentimes equates to what something, what the color of something was.
3: <laughs> you know,
1: that's uh, that can okay, be a challenge yeah, yeah. sometimes, but I, I really do try to go to the source as much as possible and try to find out as much about the prototype as possible. As, as I was saying just a second ago, when I go out and I record a, a, a diesel and um, my goal is to ride along with them all day long. And it's, yeah, maybe it's a little selfish because I do enjoy it, don't get me wrong, but it's as much as anything else. And you know I'd I'd like to say most of the reason why is that my goal is to listen to that locomotive and how it's being run for the first half of the day uh, amongst all kinds of situations, whether it's switching, running on the main, up and down hills, whatever it might be. I want to hear what that thing is doing Um, you know that helps me to set up where I put my microphones it helps me to find little nuances that are specific to that engine you know we it it goes into a lot of different things but we recorded an FM up in Rochester uh, at the beginning of the year and we had so much trouble starting that engine Uh, it was a cold day the the oil was thick uh, we ended up needing to get a salamander uh, heater to, to be able to warm things up so we could finally get it started. But the first three or four times we tried, it just kept failing. It, it wouldn't start. So because I was able to record that, we were able to put that right into the sound file. So now when you start up our, our six-cylinder FM file, um, once every maybe 10 times, just purely by chance, just purely random, the, the prime mover will fail when you go to start it. And it'll it'll chunk and <laughs> clunk and you know fail around and, and then it'll finally stall out. And then after it's failed, the next time it'll start automatically. It'll definitely start. Now you know when I was was creating. Well, that's that, the,
2: that's not very prototypical. You <laughs> should have it. What you should do is have it one in one in every ten time it actually starts. You never really. Well,
1: you're right. That would be closer to being right that day. That's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> Well, when I was creating that file, um, you know, I, I was running it on my bench and a lot of times what happens is that my my sound editor, especially in those days it was all being done in Germany, my sound editor would cut the sounds and then he would he would make the basic file and then I would go into the schedule and I would set it up to add features just like this, this, this failed start or, you know, some other things that we've been doing. But that particular time I had an error. I had a little bug in what I was doing. And it's just a flow chart and these conditions and that. And, you know, anybody can get into one of our 4.0 files and just look at that what it is. But this, it just kept failing on me. I could not get this thing to start. And I so badly wanted to to put an extra little recording in there of the engineer coming out and swearing and beating the thing with a wrench and <laughs> getting mad cuz this thing wouldn't start. You know, it's it's those those experiences though of riding along that entire day and and really being around those locomotives and, and not just the engines but the crews and how they run them and you know, just just learning about them. That's that's what's helped it's knowing and and helping to understand how the prototype works, and that that can't happen unless you're out there doing it i I think uh, paul when when we were out at uh, at Litchfield station and we were doing the clinic out there I, I I vaguely remember the the talk that that I gave to everybody and I encourage people to go out and sit next to the prototype take a weekend you know this weekend coming up here getting close to Thanksgiving um, you know a lot of people traveling and if you do you get a chance to just go sit take a take a relative out and just go sit by the tracks for a little while sit next to the yard watch and listen to what's going on with these locomotives and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at, at the work that we put into the tiny little details inside each file to try to replicate the real thing as much as possible um, I hope so I mean because honestly that's our goal that's that's what we strive for
2: no that's uh, no you've done a really nice job I think I've commented on you know you nailed the it was the FDL sixteen? Um, got that nice chug in the fourth and fifth notches.
1: Yes. Uh, yep. I, done well, it. And, and we've we've just released, like I said, that twelve cylinder FDL. Um, and I'll I'll be honest, I uh, I listen to Mike Confalone's opinions a lot. Um, mm-hmm. He's extremely hard to please. Um, yes. And you know, and I, I I look at that as a good thing because. If, if I can please his discerning ear, then most of the the customers out there will be very happy because, because he is, you know, he's, he's very knowledgeable about the prototype and what it's supposed to do. And, um, you know, a little bit of a, of a nitpick and, you know, of of his own admission. And I, again, I think that's a good thing. And, you know, usually he'll, he'll pick apart my files and say, okay, well, between here and here, we need to do something or, you know, here it's good, but there, we got to do this to do that. He just got this 12-cylinder file about two days ago, and I just got a nice email telling me that there's nothing that he can find right now. Nice. And that he thinks it's at least as good as the 16, maybe a little bit better. So uh, <laughs> hopefully that's a little bit of encouragement that the 12-cylinder is pretty good file. So
2: <laughs> excellent. But you see, the thing is, if you're going to go through all this work, you know, you might as well get it right.
1: That's right. Yep. So
2: and then you won't have. Then nobody can come back and complain and say. Oh, you missed something here. And it's like, Oh, I wish i I wish you'd told me. Yeah. You know, I wish you'd told me when I was making it. Well,
1: right. you know, I, again, I, I came from, from Bowser. I was your production manager and, and I'm still very close with them. I've, and again, my, my goal is to be uh, partners and friends with our, with our partner OEMs. So, you know, we get along really, really well. I help not just in terms of the sounds, but I'll, I'll try to consult a little bit on paint schemes or you know, uh, just checking uh, production samples and things like that just because I've been in it before. i I was a liaison back and forth to the factories in China, so I understand how that how that works and everything. and um, but we uh, something just came in, and uh, you know one of the the new Bowser engines, and there was a problem on it, and it brought me back to when I was still working there. And there was a a typo and it was on the artwork and it had been on the artwork for almost a year until the engine finally came out. Mm -hmm. Nobody said a word, but as soon as the engine came out, of course it's, it's caught and it it should be, but, you know, but I, I've had the same thought, well, where were you a year ago when you first looked at this art? (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes, you know, it's, we're not perfect. You know, we try to, to do the best that we very well can, but, uh, It it takes a a group of people that are very knowledgeable and that we can work together to to create something that everyone is going to like. And, um, you know, if I were making, you know, sound files that, you know, were were perfect for me, that certainly wouldn't be perfect for for everybody. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, everybody has different ways of doing things. So um, by bringing in, you know, Mike Confalone or or numerous other people that I consult with. That gives me the opportunity to uh, to figure out the best way to do things. You know, along with that, I'm an absolute layout junkie. I love going to layouts. You know, you mentioned Mike Rose. I've I've operated on his layout, Mike Confolone's, uh, Ken McCorry's, uh, um, people from from all over the United States and Canada. Uh, I've even been to German layouts. But I I love to go to layouts because I get to see people operating hopefully our decoders, but everything under their own conditions. And I I constantly sit and think, well, how could I change our product to make it easier for this to happen? Mm -hmm. Um, And and that's, I mean, obviously, I I love seeing what other people are doing and and the skills that they have. But that's one of the main reasons I love going to layouts, because it, it gives me the opportunity to help improve our products to make it better for them.
2: And you can tell that you actually care, so that's helpful.
1: <laughs> it, well, and again, I'm a modeler, so right? I, I do work hard to you know make it good for me, you know, and I tend to be pretty picky myself. So you know, it's uh, I do care though. It, it really is. This is uh, this truly is a life for me. It's a labor of love, because uh, um, and it's again, it's it's for the people that we work with. Um, you know, they are all friends. They're all acquaintances if i screw up on a project i constantly think well what could happen if uh you know intermountain or uh, bowser or atlas or somebody has to get all these engines back or something doesn't work what kind of financial burden would put that put them under what kind of time burden would that put them under what kind of reputation burden would that put them under so you know it's it's very very critical that we work hard to get things right and um, certainly not saying that I'm perfect or, or, you know, that, you know, everything always goes perfectly, but we, we certainly do our best to try. And, and, you know, that's a lot of the reason it's is for the sake of those that we work with, but, yeah, no, oh, that's nice. You back, Paul. No,
2: no, <laughs> uh, Paul going once. You said you were back, Paul, you <laughs> lie, you lie, Paul. <laughs> oh, you mean
0: I should unmute the uh, the microphone? Okay. Well, let me – all right, now that I'm officially back, uh, sure. the people out there listening that may not have been to your uh, website to download sound files, because maybe they get somebody to do it for them, but typically per sound file, uh, there's two files there one targeted for uh select. And I think usually the other one is targeted at the uh, select direct.
1: Um, well, there's actually a little bit more than that. Even Paul, Um I, yeah, I, I, I see what you're, what you're getting at there, but there's, there's two different types of sound files. Essentially. There's a select file and there's a version 4.0 file. And, uh, before I go any further, all of the select files, and it, it really doesn't matter um, which select file you're using, if it's the micro file or the HO file, or the we now have a new O scale decoder called the Loke Sound L, so you might see an L file there. Um, if as long as it's a select file, the software of the Lok Programmer will know that it needs to, you know, be a and Maybe if you download the micro and try to load it into an HO, the software will do the conversion. It'll understand that as long as it's a select, I'm allowed to be written to this decoder. Uh, and there's some internal things that need to be changed, but nothing that the customer has to worry about. It's all done behind the scenes. Um, the next question is always, well, why then do you have multiple files on there if you really only need one? Um, great question. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've, I've honestly been trying to figure that out myself for a little while. I think it actually goes back to the days of our previous decoder, which was the 3.5 because I, I could be completely wrong with this. And if I am, my, uh, my German counterparts will probably quickly uh, give me the answer here. But um, I think in the 3.5 decoder, the decoder or the software could not do that transfer from, from, from decoder size to decoder size. Now that it can, They've gotten into the habit of doing that, and I think they're afraid of of um, people not knowing what file to use per decoder, so they just put them out for each one. Um, I have mixed feelings about that. I think maybe sometimes it does actually cause a little more confusion, but um, but the, the long and short of it is if it's a select file, it doesn't matter the board shape or size. As long as it's a select decoder, you can write it to it. Now, on the uh, and, okay, does that also include select
0: writing to a select direct? Correct,
1: yes. Yep. Anything that's select, as long as it's a select okay. file, it'll load onto a select decoder. Select direct, select micro, HO, 21 pin, L, doesn't matter, as long as it's a select. The other side of that coin is the version 4.0. And the same thing essentially applies. As long as it's a 4.0 file, it'll write to a 4.0 HO, a 4.0, micro, a 4.0, XL or L. Um, again, the 4.0 files, they all write to the 4.0 no matter you know what version it is, and the SELECTs write it to the SELECTs. Now, the, the next logical question is, what's the difference between the SELECT and the 4.0? Yes. <laughs> the, the SELECT is what we use typically in North America. It was made to compete with uh, the soundtracks, the QSI's, the uh, TCS's. Well, TCS actually came on board after the Select, but same type of decoder. It's a DCC decoder um, with variable horns. Um, you know, you can choose between uh, different horns, different bells, some cases different prime movers. Um, it has a lot of the same features, a lot of the same uh, uh, board shapes, you know, typical U.S. type sounds. So it was made really for that. Now, the the difference is between ours and other brands is that ours is programmable in terms of the sound. You can load a sound onto it. You don't need to. You can buy it with the sound already on, just like anybody else's decoder. But the as you mentioned, the dealer can just have blank decoders, and they can load the sound on as the customer requests it. Or the dealer can even get it from me loaded. Um, we prefer that the dealer loads them. Uh, you know, saves us a little time, but it also saves them overhead. They don't have to have one of every board shape and size with every sound on it. So it saves them having all that stock in their store. But um, you know, that they don't they don't need to do it that way. But the, the the basically the difference is that you can use another fully made select file in that decoder you can replace it you know you can take a steam engine decoder and turn it into a diesel you can take an old 12 cylinder fdl file and turn it into a new 12 cylinder fdl file with brand new sounds that we've just released now the difference between that and the 4.0 is that the 4.0 is it gives you the ability to get inside the file and make alterations to the sound schedule It also allows you to upload your own WAV files. You could go out and record a locomotive just like we do and and load them into the 4.0 yourself. When we create a decoder, we use the 4.0 software. So everything that we do, the end user could do the same thing. Uh, Everything is completely open and they have access to that just like we do. The internals of the select are, are slightly different but actually, the 4.0 even gives you more ability. So, um, you know, that's why there is a little bit difference in cost between the 4.0 and the and the Select because you have more ability to get in there and make changes. Um, you could take a, a European steam engine sound, and, and they've done a number of brand new ones recently. Some of them are really, really good. You could take those sounds. Steam is steam for the most part around the world. There are some nuances, of course, but... Um, you could take the uh, the chuff from one engine and the bell from another engine, uh, the whistle from, from North American engines, um, you know injectors and air pumps and water pumps and all that stuff. And you could take your favorites from every file and create just about anything that you'd like to do by using the 4.0 because you can you can access those individual parts of the file, whereas the select is an entire package. That you know, you, you replace all at once. So that's the main difference between the select and the 4.0. Another smaller one that, that may not be quite as important to the North American market is that the 4.0 is a multi protocol decoder, it actually speaks multiple digital languages. In North America, typically, and all we use is DCC, and that's this is one digital language. There's Motorola, there's Selectrix. Uh, we created a language for Marklin called MFX. That's available in another type of decoder that we make called an M4 decoder. We uh, it's the same language. We call it M4. Marklin calls it MFX. Um, but that's that's more on the, the European side of things. But there are European modelers in North America. So if any of those guys are listening, uh, you know that'll hopefully help to explain some of the differences. Well, then okay, them. just.
0: Your comment right there about the uh, different languages, uh, European. I think I heard you say at one of your uh, meet and greets that DCC is much more prevalent in Europe vis-a-vis the United States. Is that true?
1: Um, I don't, I I think I do remember what you're referring to. I I don't know if it's so much that DCC is prevalent. I would say that DCC is much more advanced. In Europe than it is in the United States. It's farther along. And, and I'll, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is, is because we do things just differently um, in terms of the way we model to the way Europeans model. The Europeans tend to like to have things automated. And in order to do that, you'd have to have some pretty advanced electronics. So that does kind of put them you know, a little bit further ahead a lot of times. On the other side of it, as North Americans, we tend to get satisfied um, a little bit. Um, we're looking to do well, just to kind of go back over to Europe. A lot of the other things that they like to do is they have small layouts with a lot of passenger trains. Um, in North America, we have tend to have a little bit larger layouts, and we typically like to write uh, to run a little bit more freight trains and do switching. And uh, it's not just turn on the layout and watch it go, and you know let it stop automatically at stations and you know things like that. We like to be in control a little bit more over here, so. You know, there actually we have uh, new throttles out now that are uh, full-color touchscreens, and they're Wi-Fi, and they're an actual Android devices with a uh, with a knob on it. So we're we're trying to bridge that gap between the North American market and the European market. And I'm what well, my goal is is to try to bring some of that technology in to show what can be done, but yet try to bring it in at a level that uh, suits North American modelers for the type of modeling they like to do in that, you know, that freight, you know, switching and, and large layout type atmosphere.
0: Oh, it's just what you guys have accomplished over, over the last five, six years, just mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, your growth, <laughs> the, uh, the way your distribution network has increased the fidelity of the, uh, the decoders, you know, sound feature, uh, all those things. I mean,
1: very, very well done. Thank you. Like I said, it's it's a team, and I'll I'll pass that uh, those kudos on because um, without those guys, you know, I certainly I wouldn't even come close to doing this. So um, it's it's their knowledge and experience. Well, and it's
0: it. uh, some of the competitive products that have made improvements recently. I think is that their need to improve was driven by the success of ESU. That's just my opinion. a cause effect uh, relationship. So I think you've, you have helped the, uh, the modeler by spurring just, you know, the bar has been raised.
1: I, I couldn't agree with you more, Paul. Um, and, you know, and I don't mean that in a derogatory sense in any, in any fashion. In fact, just the opposite. Um, at, TrainFest, actually, um, about a year ago, I had a customer come up to me and, um, you know, he was he, he didn't mean anything by it you know, negatively. He was he was just trying to give us a, you know a bit of kudos as well and said a lot of the same things. And in passing, you know, he, he made the comment that, oh, so and so is going to be out of business in a year if you keep going. And, you know, my my instant reply was, gee, I hope not. Um, first off, as I said, you know, it's the small industry. We're all friends. Um, that's, that's not my goal. I'm not out there trying to take business away in any means. Um, but I love the competition. I, I think competition is a wonderful thing. Um, you know, with again, you know, TCS coming into the market here with a sound decoder. I think that's a fantastic thing for us. Um, and, and hopefully for them, because, that competition is really driving everyone to get better if if there's only one customer or one company out there making sound decoders it could get stale pretty easily because there's nobody driving them to get better um, and you know and obviously you know there's some self-drive there to want to get better and you know hopefully customers would say okay well what else do you have but by, by having these multiple companies that are working hard to, to get better every day and you know somewhat compete with everybody because it is it is a small market but that's that's driving them to get better and the end users they're the ones that are benefiting from it for sure and you know I, I find that to be a, a wonderful thing that's that's free market uh, 101 you know I, I I think that's that's wonderful that the end users are benefiting from it um, you know and and will continue to get better because as as we grow and, and get better, others are doing the same thing, and they'll do features that we haven't done. So we'll have to look at that and regroup and go back at it. And, you know, that just helps everybody rise together. So I I think it's a very All good right. thing. Now, I've
0: recalled uh, your background of, you know, Bowser from the uh, the first conversation we had, and you've mentioned it here. So let me ask you for a little little insight Uh I bought okay. a Bowser, it was the uh, 636, the uh, the big Alco. And it came with, uh, okay. I found one that, uh, with sound. In fact, we had it at the store, and Bob, uh, it was done in the Morrison-Nudeson lease scheme, and that's not a big seller, so I got a real good deal on it and upgraded the speakers <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> now, that board, which is a... Is that a part of the Select series just custom configured for Bowser? Is that the way you guys
1: would approach that? Okay. Uh, good question. There's there's actually two boards in the Yes engine. there are. Um, with the twenty-one pin plug, there's a decoder and a motherboard. Okay. And there, there there's a couple of reasons for that. And that it goes back into a little bit of the decoder being kind of a, a very universal decoder. Um You know, when we work with the manufacturers, that one decoder is exactly the same, whether it's used for Bowser, Intermountain, Rapido, uh, Atlas, uh, Fox Valley, you know, the list goes on and on. And and that makes it very easy for the manufacturer because the manufacturer is actually programming the decoder for them when they they get ready to do that production run of locomotives, whatever it might be, you know, in, in whatever factory is being done. So, one time, they might have decoders that are being used for, um, I'll just use Rapido, for example. One time, it might be an FL9, and then maybe they had uh, 25 decoders left over. You know, some companies would get that and use it for warranty or for just end-user sales. You know, customer really liked the sound. They want to add sound to a non-sound engine. They can get the decoder directly from the manufacturer in that case. Or those extra decoders might have been left in the factory. And now that, you know, we get to the next engine and now they program those decoders and go on. So yeah. the motherboards between those two engines, though, might have been quite a bit different. Every engine, because of the lighting that's in that engine, could have slightly different motherboards in them. Uh, could have to do with the shape of the engine, could have to do with the uh, the amount of lights or what the lights are supposed to do, uh, how they need to attach uh, because of the, the shell being close uh, you know, sometimes they'll have plugs, sometimes they'll have solder joints to the wires in the engine. But those motherboards can stay in the engine, and if there's ever a problem, the decoder can come out. Um, so it's, it's essentially a, a plug-and-play decoder directly made in the factory. Uh, now, the motherboards that are there, we help design them, but they're made by the factory. The decoder, we, we supply. So I started to ramble and I don't remember exactly what our uh, what our question was here. <laughs> Hopefully that kind of covered what you were asking. But <laughs>
2: that, That's all right, Paul. Paul has a tendency to be vague anyway. <laughs> uh, I do need to break off. It's been nice talking with you, Matt. And yes, yeah, uh, definitely. You know, yeah. so I appreciate it. And Paul, we will talk about train shows at some point. Yeah, so. I'll get back to you. Yeah. And I'll probably see you, Matt. Uh, you going to uh, Cocoa Beach?
1: I, I believe I am. Yep, I'm, I'm doing everything I can to get there. It looks like it's going to happen. So uh-huh. I've told them I'll be there, so now I have to follow through. <laughs> there you go. There you
2: go. <laughs> I will probably see you there then.
1: All right, that sounds right. great. I look forward to it. See you later, Thanks, Jimmy.
0: No, the reason I asked that, Matt, was, you know, I saw the two boards. And the motherboard is the big board on the bottom and the decoder right. plugs into the top. Well, yes. the, the bodywork on this locomotive is beautiful, and... They show, I'm presuming, a pile gyro light in the nose with the headlight up, and it's wired yeah. to the headlight. <laughs> and I'm going to shoot because I changed out the speakers. Yeah. I'm going, I'll just find one of the auxiliaries and put this on and program it as a gyro And I'm going, I don't see anything that looks like an.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Unfortunately, I, you know, again, I had mentioned earlier that I do try to work closely and try to consult a little bit with the manufacturer to because you know, I do know the prototype fairly well, and uh, you know, being you know on both sides of the fence at one time as a manufacturer and as a supplier or partner, as I like to say it. Um, yeah. i I do try to keep in mind, oh, you know you're doing this road name. you should probably have this wired separately or this and that. Sometimes I get through sometimes because of some sometimes it's necessity. It's just you know, it might be a timing issue where, you know, if they do that, it's going to delay things by a couple months because now they have to retrain how to wire things up or, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of little things in there that happen in, in production. Um, but um, that was one, actually, I was a little frustrated with as well. I, I think that, you know, all of us could have done a little better job to make sure they were lit up um, early on in that in that production run. But um, I've actually gotten that question before oh, okay. and I, have, uh, I do know I don't have it right in front of me. I'd have to pull that out and see if I can find it, but I can help you, you know, at some other time, I, if somebody has that and would like, they can contact me and I can show you where to find an open auxiliary. They'll have to do a little bit of rewiring. Um, but it's, it's pretty simple. Those are plugs in the, on the motherboard and you just have to take a wire from one plug and put it into the oh. next. And, uh, it's, it's really not that bad. There's a little bit of function mapping that may need to be done, but, um, I can, I can show you that very easily as well.
0: Okay. So. You got
1: my email. Send me that baby.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. Well, Matt, I'll tell you what, I appreciate your time. You know, we've been trying to get together for about 12 months now. Oh, it seems like it's been a while. Yeah. But it, uh, cause I just. You know, people may listen to this and go, well, he's just promoting ESU. No, I am promoting a good product that does an excellent job. And uh, you've certainly given us insight on why that is so and some of the things to look at for in the future. No, excellent job, and I appreciate your time.
1: Uh, Thank you, Paul. Like you said, I know it's been a while. We've been trying to get together, and, you know, unfortunately – you know, it's it's a double-edged sword having all the business that we do right now, because it definitely keeps me busy. But uh, you know, I, I do enjoy it though, and I you know I I'm very grateful for the opportunity. It's it's truly a blessing to be able to to work with the great people that are in this industry, and you know also the definitely the the end users that are out there. It's um, you know we're in a very good industry when it comes to people. Um, you know, it's we don't rarely get. People that really get angry and complain and get upset. Most people, if there's a problem, they're understanding or or they're just grateful. And uh, you know, I'm I'm certainly grateful for that aspect of it. It's a great industry to be in. Okay,
0: and uh, and back to your your quote at the beginning: "The get got get <laughs> to do it, but you don't got to do it." That That's came right. from your pastor, right?
2: Did, yeah. Yes. Okay.
0: <laughs> Sounds like uh, dealing with temptation. Or wiring up uh, gyro lights, you,
2: you get to right. do it, but you don't
0: got to do it. That's, That's excellent. Right. I like that. Made a mental note. Well, you've got a, a family and a business to take care of, so let me cut you free. I think this has been a great session.
1: Well, thanks again for having me, Paul. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. All right, Matt.
0: Thank you. All right. All right take
1: buddy. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.